0: There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly
1: extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. The show this July was the single hottest month of recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest
0: spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. the
1: rate that's of great concern. A uh, what do you so, have that rate down Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change.
2: Hello, Mark, and listeners. Yes, I get to play the proud dad in this week's episode as a wonderful chat with Tracy Sorensen, author, academic, climate activist and president of the Bathurst Community Climate Action Network.
1: Okay, Tracy's got such a long CV, I almost forgot to ask this question, Rich, but what do you mean by proud dad? <laughs> Have you let the kids take over the show?
2: Not exactly, Mark. Well, you know, not not yet anyway.
1: Are you training a protege? <laughs>
2: no, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's
1: going to be Rich Jr.?
2: <laughs> okay. uh, no, no, they don't like the hours, Mark. But if you and the listeners could keep an ear out for the last question I asked Tracy, you'll hear it was supplied by son Jack. Himself studying at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, New South Wales, where Tracy is a highly respected lecturer.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing that. I bet his question really uh, knocked it out of the park.
2: It did, Mark. He nailed it in one, as Tracy, Jack, and myself all agree.
1: All right. Well, let's go then. I can't wait to hear it. To Rich's interview with climate activist and author Tracy Sorensen.
2: Tracey, thanks so much for appearing on the show. I know you're probably interviewed out with your book launch tour for The Lucky Galar.
0: No worries. I'm still happy to <laughs> talk about it, yeah.
2: Fantastic. I'll get to the, your work on climate change very soon, but I wonder if you could just give us a talk about The, the Lucky Galar and what it's about and uh, where listeners can find it.
0: Well, The Lucky Galar is a novel and it's narrated by a pink and grey Australian galar and it's set at the time of the moon landing. Um, or just in the years prior to the moon landing, it kind of culminates in the moon landing. Mm. And the the location is the north coast of Western Australia, and it's in a little town called Port Badminton, which is a little bit like the town of Carnarvon where I grew up mm-hmm. in Western Australia, and we always had the radio telescope dish um, sitting on the red sand dune just out of town. Yep. So the, the story's been kind of woven around that. Also, we had... My family had a, a pink and grey galah in the in the, in a cage just outside the back door. I guess as an environmentalist, I'm always interested in the in the fact that nature and the environment and the world around us isn't just a sort of a dead thing or something there for us to mm. use, but that it actually has its own agency and and its own life and and in a sense, um, the galah represents that. I, I guess that's where the, my environmental concerns cross over with being a novelist. But yeah. on the other hand, being a novelist is also just about making things up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved it. Look, I, I haven't been able to look at a glass since, to be honest, Tracy. <laughs> to think, you know, to think they're actually re- – but I won't. I won't give anything away. Okay, <laughs> okay so – Tracy, you're a filmmaker, journalist, academic at Charles Sturt University and now author, and I think that that's just a few from your CV. <laughs> uh, but I'd really like to focus on your work on climate change. Yep. Uh, you're the president of the Bathurst Community Climate Action Network, and that's here in the central west of New South Wales for those listening outside of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, just wonder if you can give us a little bit of information about the group and its goals.
0: Okay, well... Beacon formed in 2006, 2007, more or less in the immediate aftermath of the Al Gore movie, An Incon- Inconvenient Truth. Yes. Uh, it wasn't just about that though. I mean, climate change was very much in the, in the air at the time. Um, it was, it, it was a big, big social discussion and there were a group of people in Bathurst trying to get Bathurst Regional Council to adopt a climate change policy and to kind of future-proof, in a sense, Bathurst in terms, you know, you know, in the face of predicted temperature rises in the region. Mm, yep. um, Bathurst Council at the time, I mean, this is back in more than 10 years ago now, Bathurst Council at the time decided not to go down that road. Mm. specifically at that time so BCAN uh, basically set itself up as a way for local residents to get their heads around climate change discuss yeah. it amongst themselves and kind of be a lobby or action group and it was kind of set up with pretty high hopes pretty pretty ambitious really um, mm. when I compare it when I think about other um, climate action groups around the country this one seemed to you know, I joined in after it had been formed and, and in hindsight, I see that the, its hopes and dreams were pretty, pretty ambitious. I think there's things in the original charter, like Bathurst Council would be half using renewable energy by 2020 or something yep, like that. Yep. You know, like these dates are all starting to, you know, get very close. Um, yep. Yeah, um, so, yeah, we've been going ever since. So it's, it's now well over 10 years. And I guess the group's had its highs and lows. So it kind of had a steadily increasing membership and involvement up to the point at which, up to the point of the Copenhagen, Copenhagen UN talks in 2009. So mm. that, that slammed people because there was kind of international, kind of, um, a big step back in, in terms of international agreements. And then the other thing that happened was that Kevin Rudd, the current, the prime minister of the time, went back on the idea of a, Carbon tax after yes. a huge campaign by the yep. mining industry, and so on. So yeah, the group kind of went into a bit of not not exactly a slump, but kind of took a few steps back and had the wind taken out of its sails. Mm. Um, but we've continued ever since, and just do a lot of different things. Really, I, I guess just for just about everyone in BCAN, being in BCAN means a different thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's such a giant topic and there are so many ways you can relate to the idea of taking action on climate change but yeah we kind of just all yeah i I guess the way we resolve that is we do different things at different Mm. times yeah
2: it's interesting you talk about that time of the the miners campaign uh it it was a strange time wasn't it Uh, Mm. i've been trying to explain that to a few people that weren't here it was like a complete shift at one moment we had a government that was really looking to do something on climate change. And then that sort of caved in in and it was cowardice really, wasn't it, Tracy? There's no other word for it. And everything sort of changed overnight. It was quite unbelievable. Um,
0: It it really was a big reversal, wasn't it? Um, It it went from being Kevin Rudd calling it the greatest moral challenge of our generation to... Uh, okay, let's not. And you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a politically impossible. I mean, I won't say impossible because you can have political will. You can do things if you really want to, but it has damaged. Uh, I mean, I mean, Turnbull has also similarly gone from a position of climate change being of great importance to him yes. to basically now supporting the coal lobby. So yeah, I mean, politics doesn't seem to be able to rise above the fossil fuel lobby very well
2: i was just going to ask you tracy do you think we'll ever get back to that optimistic stage i mean it is hard for people younger people just coming into say their first or second electoral cycle now to yeah to be told that it was a time when there was it did seem very positive we were going to be a world leader do you think that'll ever come back
0: i don't No, I mean, I hope it does. I hope, I hope we have a big moment where we swing back to it. It's all, it's almost like, I mean, I I know this is being very dramatic, but it's almost like someone with Cancer or very serious illness or something. There's, you mm. know, you swing swing wildly between sort of defeat and pessimism, and then great optimism and hope. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and um, you know, so I, I I believe anything can happen. I, I believe we can go in any number of ways. There are, there are all these different potentials. So I guess. My approach is to a, a band of others uh, yes. to, to see to see if we can push things a little more in, in the direction of embracing this problem and seeing what we can do about it in the face of a lot of people just going into denial and mm. also in the face of a massive, massive campaign by vested interests.
2: That's interesting you were talking about an inconvenient truth and the effect that had on it was just really a simple film, but it had a massive effect. My, my co-host, Mark Spencer, spoke to members of Cl- Climate Reality, which was created just after an inconvenient truth to pass on the message. And they each had stories that they could tell. Some of them were young ones, but some of the, one of them was, had been there from the start about exactly what you said, Tracy, about how we went from being op- optimistic to pessimistic and, it was just a film, but it had major impact as far as I, I can remember taking my kids, actually. They were only young kids, and Carol, my wife, and I decided to take them to See an Inconvenient Truth at Mount Vic Flicks. I'm not sure if you, you know that. It's, I do. It's uh, in Mount Victoria for people outside New South Wales, which is in the Blue Mountains. And they were only 12, and 10 at the time, and I thought, well, this is a bit heavy for, for kids to take you know out for a bit of a treat, but... As they were watching it, I sort of looked, I remember looking down the aisle and uh, seeing their faces, it was, they were drinking it in and taking it all in and since that day, I might might be a little bit over-traumatic there myself, but since that day they do seem to be more environmentally aware.
0: Mm. That's wonderful, yeah, and I think that film had just massive impact on people. The fact that it was Al Gore who was, you know, such a respected and, you know, um, Mm figure important yes. figure in the yeah. world um yep. you know i mean there's there's a lot of communication theory about people will will believe something if it comes from someone that they consider is reputable or mm. uh, or authoritative and they'll ignore information you know from from sources that they don't admire or find authoritative so at that time alcor was still an authoritative figure in the world mm. and so for someone of that stature to say, listen, we have a huge problem. We need to go for it was, was enormously convincing. I think sadly what's happened since is that in some ways that a lot of that's gone backwards. The Trump era in politics mm, has yeah. is just trashing the idea of any authoritative figures in the world at yeah. all. I mean, Al Gore almost comes from another era, which is prior to. Fake news prior to the enormous proliferation of social media. We're, we're trying to do this in, in the midst of a lot of nonsense. Mm. Um, you know, and, and social media and, and, you know, podcasts like this, all of this is just fabulous. It can be used to educate and explore issues. But yeah, uh, it's also just creating this incredible white noise. In mm. in people's lives,
2: that's not. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have this theory. It's very interesting that you should say that, Tracy. Because I have this theory, untested, of course. But I'm thinking that most of the action that's coming through in in countries such as Australia now are through local environment groups, and people are totally ignoring federal politics, uh, overseas politics. They are just using it as a joke, mm. as a literal joke. People are like Trump getting in. And people are trusting local environment groups like BCAN. I'm just wondering what you think about that.
0: Over 10 years, because we've stayed here for 10 years and we've continued, we've been continuously active for 10 years, in some ways, We're part of the furniture in the community in Bathurst. Um, Certainly a lot of people see us every month at the farmer's markets and we have a column in the local paper and, you know, we're we're here, we comment on things. So Mm. I think there's a certain amount of trust or respect that we have. On the other hand, in some ways things are more polarised than they were 10 years ago and the alt-right anti-green uh, side of things has kind of doubled down a bit. So in, in some ways, locally, things are just as polarized as they are mm. more broadly. But having said that, I think it's true that people, there are a lot of people, well, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of people who want to continue to explore These ideas in their own way, on their own turf, in their own, in their, on their own terms, you know. Um, so that's a, that's a certainly a group of people here in Bathurst. Yeah. I mean, then there's other people who kind of relate to the issue more globally, you know, through face, Facebook, for example, or Instagram or whatever where they're watching feeds to do with, you know, melting ice caps and sort of Mm. relating to it sort of as this kind of global citizen that's, almost not really present anywhere on earth but Mm. connecting globally. But, yeah, I do really think it's incredibly important to work very locally in an embodied way, Mm. i.e. face-to-face, you know, with people that you meet. Use social media to enhance that or help with that. But I think it's essential that we do do it face-to-face with people that we can get to know locally. I just think that makes a big difference
2: it's very interesting growing up in Tasmania right at the uh, no dams issue yeah. and it just split i could uh, i had vivid memories of <laughs> quiet sleepy tasmania splitting almost down the middle mm. and it was then that i got the idea that the importance of people getting together that were like minded and, and the a- absolute power of that mm. um, and and uh, yeah it it affected affected me i'm just wondering if 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 younger people People around the ages of my two sons, around, you know, early to mid 20s, do they have the same sort of feel for local organisations, do you think?
0: My impression would be no, but I'm willing to be proven wrong on that. Um, yeah. Certainly, Bathurst Community Climate Action Network is kind of sort of maybe starts in the late 30s and up, and mm. we have a preponderance of people over 50. So yeah. that's people. Who have grown up with the tradition of face to face civic involvement. Yeah. Certainly younger people seem very active on social media, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if there is still that tradition among younger people of actually, you know, sitting in meetings, going, mm. going through agenda items. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Maybe we don't need to worry about it or stress about it too much and maybe People of a younger generation, once they get onto this issue, will find their own ways of relating to it and getting involved, yes. and can be, you know, essentially a group of slightly older people. Maybe that's okay, you know. And mm. then we and then we join up around particular things. But I've kind of noticed that in terms of BCAN, when we have kind of meeting and talk based events. It's harder to get younger people, but when we have activism based events like yep. um, going to a demonstration or unfurling banners somewhere or doing a stunt for photos on social media, then we're much more la- likely to have younger people involved oh, yeah. in that. So, yeah, people are wanting to come at it from in different ways, you know, gener- generationally.
2: Exactly. And putting you on the spot, Tracy. When was the personal tipping point for you, uh, when you realised you had to become involved in climate action?
0: Yeah. Okay. I um, I've been interested in in an environment environmental and social justice issues since high school, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, it was an inconvenient truth that kind of crystallised it. I mean, I'd been following the issue. I remember the ozone layer in the eighties. I kind of followed that. But yeah. certainly the information, you know, seeing that movie *An Inconvenient Truth was really, for me, a moment of uh, we are stuffed
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> unless we all do something, you know. Yes, I mean, uh, exactly. Um, I, I would say that's the power of a uh, good old documentary. It, it was very inspiring, yeah.
2: And you are a filmmaker, aren't you, Tracy? You understand mm. that, that power as well.
0: A filmmaker is probably making... A bit much of it. I, I, I tend to think of myself as someone who makes videos. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, uh, it's all been on video. I've never, never worked in actual film. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah, I do think for me, uh, making a documentary about something or watching a documentary about something is incredibly powerful. And I think that's borne out on social media as well. I mean, the um, incredible popularity of quite short visual images or Still images or short video clips, yes, um, yeah. incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I think that medium really works. But yeah, it's the quick, punchy yes, video think, link that gets people.
2: Yeah, it's 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 the sound grab now, isn't it? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, um, that's what uh, gets across. But I think people have. The tools at their disposal. I mean, even I, at my (laughs) my age, Mm. I've learned learning how to use audiogram on Facebook for Facebook pages. It's 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 awesome. It's really it is awesome. Yeah, fun to do, and you can craft a minute message and put some really good pictures behind it. Mm. Put some text in as well, just covering a little bit of what what you're saying, and that is a a very powerful thing to share.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Okay, so you explore so well the wheel of fate in your mm-hmm. debut novel, Lucky Galah, as though it's something we have little control over. But do you agree we do have some control over our climate change destiny? And that that's really convoluted question, Tracy. Mm. But I deserve yeah, points. It's
0: a great question. Yeah. I deserve
2: I deserve points for putting your <laughs> <laughs> putting your novel in, didn't?
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank, yeah. No okay. Um, yeah. Well. No, the the short answer is I guess as a novelist I'm thinking about sort of different things to Mm. the way I'm thinking as an activist, so they're almost like two different parts of the brain in some ways. Yes. Um, Certainly the publisher was the one who used the word fate all over the marketing materials for the Lucky Galar. It wasn't a word that I used at all in it. Mm. And I did use the word luck. I was much more looking at the concept of privilege ultimately. So, yeah, just interesting how things are marketed and, and put out there because I think that, you know, we can be lucky and that can help put wind in our sails, but I yes. don't, I don't think our fate is predetermined in that mm-hmm. sense. I'm not Thomas Hardy, um, yeah. saying everything's just going to end in tears no matter yeah. what. So I, I I do believe we have free will and we're also hoping for a bit of luck here and there. I believe we can, honestly, over and over again, um, we have pulled off um, mm. great social change. Anything's possible. And, you know, things that, you know, I mean, obviously just things, things that were unthinkable not that long ago mm. are now happening. Gay marriage, you know, like as a high school student that would have been just literally unthinkable, um, yeah. so we you know we can move, we can we can turn our minds around we can we can believe we we can believe different things, nothing's locked in we, we can be agents in the world and and change
2: things. The next question Tracy was uh, I think you've already answered it, but I'll ask it anyway. um yeah. are you optimistic or pessimistic on climate change
0: <laughs> It depends. On the time of day?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Depends on morning or evening. I tend yes. to be more optimistic about life in the mornings and pessimistic in the evenings. Yeah, o- other people have have it the other way around um yeah,
2: on the other way around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah by the evening i often think what's the point <laughs> but i wake up in the in, uh, first thing in the morning and think yes let's go um, Yep. Yeah. so yeah i guess that's a very six of one and half a dozen of the other i think we need to encompass in our minds the possibility of defeat we have to we have to encompass the possibility that this might not work out. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think a, a lot of climate change action skips straight from here's the problem straight over to and here's the solution without yeah. really dwelling on the problem. And there's a beautiful title of a book called "Staying with the Trouble" by Donna mm-hmm. Haraway, and she's talking about let's let's stay with the trouble. Let's think about the problem a bit Mm. longer so i think we do need to discuss between ourselves what might it mean if we don't do anything what will this look like and Mm. to and to kind of almost emotionally embrace um the possibility that this might not work out and again i guess i i come back to that parallel with serious life threatening illness um Uh, which I had personally in 2014, where Mm. you do have this moment of this might not work out, you know, Mm. I'll, I'll, um, I'll take these actions. I'll do what I can, but it might not work out for me. So yeah, so I, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic because I believe that either of these is possible. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, it's obviously probably all, all all a matter of degree, but yeah, it depends on us. It's over to us.
2: I asked the same question of John Fry, yep. Bath Bathurst councillor and beacon member. Yeah, and, and he completely nailed me. He said, "He said I'm realistic. Rich. I'm realistic." Yeah. <laughs> and so he he said everything in a couple of words. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, so what would, um, just bringing th- what you were saying just then, Tracy, back to the central west of New South Wales and also where you come from in Carnarvon on the northwest coast of Western Australia. What would, say, a business as usual approach to climate change do to both of those areas?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because everything depends on everyone else also doing it, you know. Yeah.
2: Yep. Um,
0: so obviously, for for the central west of New South Wales, the mm. um, Bureau of Meteorology predicts more extremely hot days, yes. and. Overall drying of the landscape, which doesn't mean that we won't have intense weather events and cold snaps like the ones we're having now. But you know, overall, we're we're going for these um, extremes. So more days in the year that hit these extremes, and uh, you know, the well, yeah, agriculture, which is um, this area is an agricultural area. Um, Mm. Some 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 weird weather patterns coming year in year out without relief. Um, yes. could be incredibly destructive. And in, in Carnarvon, the area there is, is, is very different and tries to do very different things. But I guess one thing that really, um, is affecting the absolutely stunning, stunning coastline in, mm. you know, Indian Ocean and that, those incredible areas there yes. is that warming. A warming ocean is actually already having an impact on marine ecology. And so those areas are actually already combined with habitat loss and overfishing and so on. Already quite dramatic impacts can be seen in, in that, in those areas. So, and that's just one of it. I mean, there's also the grazing industry Mm -hmm. out Mm. inland and so on that's likely to be affected if we do business as usual we within a few decades you know people were putting this off you know for hundreds of years it's now yeah. looking like mere decades yeah. um the situation is going to be very difficult and and our lives uh you know will be very diffi- difficult and even if we do a lot a lot of this is probably also going to happen um yeah. so So I guess the other thing is, like, yes, we need to be campaigning to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we also, as John Fry says, need to be realistic and accept that these rising temperatures are going to happen no matter what now and really build that into our planning and into how we do things. So, Hmm. I mean, just as an example, in Bathurst we have a lot of trees that Seem to get cut down all the time, and the the idea is, you know, we, we're told, oh, well, we'll just replace those, we'll plant other trees, mm. and those trees won't come to maturity for another two or three decades or longer. But climate change is likely to be really biting by then. So
2: really, you know, yeah. it's
0: this—it's this sense of like this is an oncoming train where we need to be getting out of the way <laughs> now.
2: I was uh, talking to. Mark Rathbone tracy he 's a biodynamic farmer from Northern Victoria, and I asked him a similar question you know, what can biodynamics you know a, a change in attitude on farming yeah can that help mitigate against weather extreme weather effects that sort of thing And his answer was quite interesting he says yes it 's a closed system, and that 's what they aim to achieve. And he's trying to do that through his websites and training uh, is to train farmers again. look, you know this is how it's been for generations. You can't keep doing the way you've you've been doing it, but this might show away. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's the the kind of attitude that uh, that might mitigate successfully at, at least against the the changes that are, as you say coming very soon or even here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm personally no expert on agriculture at all, but I would say it's clear that people need to be doing things differently and uh, positioning themselves to take a different tack. I mean, it's interesting locally. Again, um, these people are members of BCAN. There's a local winery, Renzaglia Wines. They are saying that they're already thinking about maybe not being cool climate wine producers. Okay. Um So they, they actually change the nature of their production because in the future um, this area might not be quite so suited to cool climate wine, which seems yeah. incredible for a cold area like Bathurst. Yeah, they're already noticing the big differences, so they're harvesting earlier each year. For them, climate change is already here, so, mm. you know, they're thinking of doing things differently already.
2: I the wine industry does uh, seem to suffer the consequences earlier than anything else. I remember there's a documentary on the ABC a number of months ago now, but uh, it was a winery that actually moved to Tasmania because they just couldn't handle where they were. I can't remember where they were from. It might have been mm. Victoria. Mm. And they actually moved their whole operation. They'd been... Uh, um, that had been farming you know, grapes for for many generations, but they had to because uh, the climate variations were too strong.
0: yeah, that's right, and a bit like the marine creatures you know on the northwest coast of w a moving south if you if you want those colder climates zones, weather yes. zones for whatever reason you you start shifting south, so a lot of a lot of people and animals and industries are shifting south. Literally, or the other alternative is to change what you're doing to suit the oncoming conditions.
2: All right, my final question, Tracy, is from my son Jack. Yeah, uh, he's he's currently studying a masters in communications at CSU. Oh, and he asks you, in your capacity as a writer, filmmaker, and communicator, how do you think we can best use art? To raise awareness on climate change.
0: Oh, isn't that wonderful? Okay. It, it, it's, a bit, it's the best
2: question. <laughs> yeah. <it really> <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh okay. Well, I I think the best way we can use art is the way that we already have hold of. So I don't I don't think there's a single answer. I think it's like mobilising artists and then mobilising scientists and others to use mm-hmm. art. Um, yep. and it might be in a million different ways. So I mean, personally, um, as you might know, I am a crochet artist as well
2: as (laughs) (laughs) all these other
0: things. And I've found that the most direct and simple and straightforward conversations I've ever had about the environment and climate change have been while I've been crocheting the Macquarie River. So I'm yeah. crocheting a representation of the Macquarie River with a group of women and yes. um people come straight over to us and say, What is that? What are you doing? And then mm. we're able to have this gorgeous little conversation. Whereas if we'd been sitting there with placards about climate change, those same people probably would have given us a wide berth, you know. So yes, I yes. think <laughs> I think art just immediately breaks down barriers. It gives people something intriguing to look at and stop and examine and think about art form specific, I think, whatever art form. Um, yeah. But using the arts to communi- communicate about climate change is incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I mean, I've just also read the book um, Storyland by Catherine McKinnon, which is mm. now shortlisted for the Miles Franklin, and it's a cli-fi novel. Cli-fi being climate fiction. Yes. And, you know, for some people reading reading um, climate fiction might be the thing that inspires them. Writers trying to imagine a future that might not be that far in, in the future gives people a, a feeling for it. I think that's what the arts can do is, is it gives it emotional content. Yeah. Um, climate change can feel, to a lot of people, very abstract, to do with molecules and atoms and, um maybe solar panels no, nothing around that kind of gets the emotions going that easily, but mm. you know the arts can really kind of create that possibility of an emotional engagement.
2: That neatly dovetails with an article I read. I'll send you the link, Tracy. I haven't yeah. got it open, I'm just looking for it as we speak, but it's talking about using site communications, and what you're describing there is uh, instead of confronting, and a sort of meeting a blank wall. Yeah, communications or, or art art forms such as crochet, such as writing, provides a sort of and they described it. I think as a side door. Yeah, and uh, that way people are allowed in. They don't feel threatened. Yeah, and you can discuss things like climate change, education. But that's a fascinating point.
0: I agree. Yeah.
2: Thank you very much for your time, Tracy. I really do appreciate it. It's been great. You've uh, raised some very interesting points. No worries. Um, I usually leave just a minute or so just for you, if there's anything you'd like to bring up or if there's any events that you'd like to advertise. Mm. Please go ahead.
0: Okay, well, September the 8th is going to be a big day of mm-hmm. climate action nat- nationally, organised by 350.org. Um, yes. So maybe a little plug for that. Yes. And, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess the thing for me – sorry if, this, um, if I'm going off
1: taking no, well that's a that's of a minute, but no, that's wh- fine.
0: one thing for me is that how do you – do just a little bit about something that is so giant. So Mm. if we all throw ourselves at it and burn ourselves out, that's not going to help. It's requiring people to be informed and engaged without burning out. And Mm. so how can we tolerate our own limited resources and our own relative powerlessness and then work out, what we are going to do under those circumstances. I mean, I don't have the answer to that question.
2: Yeah,
0: um yeah. but But um, it's certainly something to think about. So so if every, I mean, it's just, you know, it is a cliche, but it's so true if everyone did, did a little bit each week, we'd be yes. in such a different position than, you know, having four or five people doing everything on behalf of everyone else, you know, uh, so, which so, burns yeah. those four or five people out. So, mm. yeah, some, a point to ponder.
2: And, and very finally, Tracy, can we expect a cli book from you in the near future?
0: Yes, maybe you can.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> a climactic exclusive. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right, actually. That's the first time I've said that.
2: Fantastic. That's really good. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if I was going uh, to. That's, that's great. I won't ask any more. Okay. But, um I hope, uh, hope to see it very soon. Okay, Tracy, thank yeah, you again. Thank you, no worries. Mark, I'm just wondering about your thoughts on Tracy's answer to Jack's question on using art as a side door to talking to people on climate change.
1: I think that's entirely right. I think when Tracy says art concerned with climate change can give people a great opportunity to ask questions and and get curious where otherwise they might not, I I agree completely with that. I think we're kind of past the facts phase of public awareness. I think the facts are out there. And as we learned from talking to, say, Climate Reality Project and other groups out there that try to just get the facts out into the public, I I think we're kind of – that mission is kind of accomplished. But now the hard part is – we're now going for the rest of people because the people interested in facts and care about facts, they, they can get them and they, they've got them. I think what Tracy says about cli-fi, how it can make interesting the, uh, the boring stuff, the, how solar panels work and what, what they actually mean for society when we have, say, solar energy at scale and, mm. and the science of these things, making those actually into interesting sort of story driven topics. That's why I'm so interested in that new field of fiction of Clify. I think there's going to definitely be more discussion about climate fiction for our, you know, climactic time on future episodes. Like I, I got to admit that was one of the reasons why the uh, the name climactic really appealed to me because it had a little bit of a a literary tinge to it. So um if you enjoy cli talk there's going to be more about that.
2: Right. Okay. Well, I didn't know that, Mark.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think there's an old messenger thread I could pull up where I I talked about that.
2: (laughs) No, I love it. I love it. But speaking of cli Mark, how about Climactic Exclusive of
1: Tracy's new book? Yeah, yeah, you heard that here first, and I'm really excited to read it.
2: Tracy goes into some detail about the changes facing farmers out here in the central west of New South Wales, and I'd just like to say a few things on their behalf. Now, it's said that farmers feel the changes brought about by climate change first because they're on the ground, and know they see it, they know it well, and they feel its consequences. Often it's them that feel the brunt, and they have to be the first to act. And that's definitely the case at the moment, Mark. It's obvious that drought has afflicted the land here in a big way. And even I, and I live in a humble town in the middle of the Central West, can see and hear about this from discussions and my own observations. Now, we're getting stories filtering through of whole herds being euthanised locally, which is one of the big problems now because of the drought. Now, I do know that there are a number of excellent organisations helping farmers out throughout Australia, and we at Climactic would urge you to consider contributing to these organisations. But there's one I'd like to mention here in the central west of New South Wales, and it's called Feed for Farmers. That's feed for the numeral farmers. And if you just apply to join their Facebook group, and I think they took about 10 minutes before they accepted my application, uh, you can find details there about how to donate to farmers to give them much needed feed for their stock. And uh, we'll have more links in the show notes. Thanks very much, folks. Thank you, Mark, for that. Now for some credits.
1: We would like to thank our stalwart producer, Caleb Fidicaro, and uh, check him out on Twitter at HipsterJazbo for some very incisive and sometimes just downright weird <laughs> tweets.
2: <laughs> and I'd like to thank Abigail Hawkins, who's our amazing designer. Now, you can find her at AbigailHawkins.com and ask to see her work. And,
1: and we'd also like to thank Friend of the show Because Caleb told me off last time For saying friend of the pod Greg Grassi He composed the amazing theme song You hear at the start of each and every episode Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S We'd also like to thank Senior advisor to the show Gretchen Miller Gretchen, I was listening to your amazing podcast This week called Prevention Works I got a lot out of it and boy well Gretchen, when we feel like tackling a more difficult topic than climate change we can start to deal with healthcare inequality in Australia she makes
2: it sound so so easy too doesn't she thank you very much Gretchen
1: (laughs) so feel free to check out that show and Gretchen does tell me she's got another project coming out soon that climactic listeners are going to be especially interested in so look out for that
2: finally I'd like to thank Tracy and all the members of the BCAN team for their fine and selfless work in Bathurst and the Central West and details about Tracy's book can be found in the show notes.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. And if you would like to be on the show yourself or know someone who'd be interested, pop us a line at hello at climactic.fm or talk to us on Facebook. There's a link to our new community group on Facebook in the show notes as well.
0: The Climactic Collective.